0: Well, I have been a pastor now for nearly 40 years. Oh my! Yeah, I know, that sounds like a long time. I, I remember when I had my 40th birthday, I thought, wow, yeah. I'm getting old. I <laughs> know, I've been a pastor for nearly 40 years. Uh, I've been to a lot of funerals. In fact, uh, in one place that I lived, that was my official... That, that was my main thing. I was I was the only pastor in town. I was the resident pastor. So when anybody in the area died, it was like, call Pastor Mark. That's what I did. Um, so I've been to a lot of funerals. I've heard a lot of stories told about the folks who passed. Uh, and But I've heard one of the most unique stories uh, at a memorial service ever this week. And... Uh, Connie and I attended her Uncle Dave's funeral. I hope you don't mind me telling this. Okay. <sighs> well, hey, she can always say no. Nope. And then there goes the whole intro. Uh, but uh, uh, we attended her Uncle Dave's funeral, whose, I didn't realize this, his middle name is my dad's name. David Lee. It was pretty wild. I'm sitting there going, "Woo, that's interesting. Uncle Dave's funeral. Uh, one of Connie's brothers recalled a regular occurrence that their home was hearing their father pray for his brothers to turn and follow Jesus. And her brothers, he's re- telling and recounting the story, confess that Particularly for Uncle Dave his first thought was well, that's not very likely That's not likely." But about 30 years ago not quite but almost 30 years ago Uncle Dave was about to have surgery And his son Mike was working overseas, but he flew home to be with his dad before that surgery. Before he left, he recruited a team of people to pray for them. And Mike walked into his dad's uh, hospital room to ask him a simple, life-changing question. Don't you think it's time started following Jesus. Although David had grown up in the church but he hadn't followed Jesus <coughs> for as long as anybody could remember <coughs> That's why Connie's brother thought, yeah, that's not very likely. When he heard his dad yeah, pray. So Mike asked his dad don't you think it's time to start following Jesus and Uncle Dave said to him I wouldn't know where to begin now I don't know exactly what Mike said but I'm gonna suggest that it could have been something like this I'm borrowing these words from, from author David Shoup it's his favorite uh, analogy his favorite phrases for using when he's inviting people to follow Jesus and He takes people to a wedding ceremony and he says t- says something like this He explains it like this. How would you feel if you were to attend my wedding and Up on the altar at the, it was at the wedding mm-hmm. I said something like this to my bride. I, I promise to love you most every day of the week And I'm gonna give up most of my other girlfriends I'm going to try really hard to be there for you in the hard times, but I'm not going to make any promises. He says the crowd would shout boos at me, right? They would want to walk out. Why? Because partial vows insinuate that I think my bride is cheap. She's not valuable. She's not important to me. She's not worth full force vows and promises. I'm insulting her. And in addition, by making partial vows, I'm guaranteeing that we're going to have a weak, unhappy marriage. We're not going to have a marriage. We're going to be. It's just not going to work. Just as with my wife, we. We should be indignant if anyone offers Jesus partial vows, if we offer anybody else partial vows. Just, just like for Dave's wife, he, this author's wife, he says, Jesus deserves full vows. Our, just Jesus is not cheap. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He won't be impressed with partial promises I may possibly, by some slim chance, give you a few days, an hour or so of my life every week, maybe, if it's convenient. He goes on to say, when I got married, pledging full vows did not mean that my wife and I had already agreed about every decision we would have to make together for the next 50 years or more that's impossible but it did mean that I would listen to her and she would listen to me on every single issue in our lives when we say yes to Jesus we don't know every decision that lays lies ahead but we do know that we will listen to him and say yes to him on every issue Again, I can't tell you what Mike said, but I can tell you that Uncle Dave lived nearly the last three decades of his life listening to Jesus and saying yes to him. He was different. He cleaned things out of his house and people thought he would never clean out of his house. He went home and talked to his wife and she started following Jesus and they were two completely different people because Jesus changed them see Jesus invites everyone to follow him and he welcomes anyone who accepts his invitation and I believe he loves to And it specializes in the ones that make us think, well, that's not likely. All of us need to say yes to Jesus' invitation. All of us. We all have the same basic problem. It just shows up different in all of our lives. Our problem is not our sins. our our actual acts of disobedience are probably different but we all worship idols now first of all everybody's going i don't need idols yeah yeah you do i'm not talking about little statues or figurines that you pray to we build our lives around things other than jesus and those things produce our sinful actions our sinful attitudes that produce our sinful actions. We bow down to many different kinds of idols, again, not figurines and statues. And here are five examples. These are really prominent ones, particularly in our society. And we and you can we can make it with these statements. Life, life has meaning, or I only have worth if I have power and influence over other people. That's a power idol. My life, life has meaning, or my I have value only if I have power over other people. I build my life on power. That's an idol. It's not a little statue, but it is isn't Jesus that you're building your life on. Second, another possibility is my life has meaning, or I have value only if I have this kind of pleasurable experience or a particular quality of life it's, it, that's comfort a comfort idol I want this level of comfort this level of pleasure and I'll do whatever I can to get it i build my life around that and if I can't have it life is meaningless that's an idol Third, life has meaning, or I have value only if I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, or nice possessions. That's materialism. If you don't under no, it, it, just take a step back. That's what this nation's built on. Our nation is built on the materialism. I We, I'm going to leave preaching and start meddling here. Our society is built on worshiping money. From day one, we like to think that the pilgrims were the ones who started the, this country, and they came here for religious freedoms. They were not the first ones to start the colonies. The George, the folks, in Jamestown. The, Virginia and they came here to make money and they would do anything and everything and they would sell and buy anyone literally to make a buck why did we fight the Revolutionary War it wasn't because we wanted independence it's because we wanted to keep as much money as we possibly could Taxation without representation is tyranny. In other words, keep your money, your grubbing fingers, off of my stuff. <clears throat> now, we're we going to get some letters. My email address is pastormartinez@gmail.com. at gmail.com. you don't like that, you might want to ask yourself if you um, have accidentally started worshiping the material of Bible it saturates our culture. When we have a problem, what do we do? Throw money at it, it, that'll fix everything. There's a pandemic, throw money at it. It's over, people won't go back to work, throw money at it. right, it's over, throw more money at it. Okay, stop that now, let's keep going. Fourth, fourth, fourth example of an idol yeah, that is that, around here. Life has meaning or I have value only if I feel I am totally independent of organized religion and of living a self-made morality. That's irreligion, a non-religion idol. This is a growing one in our society. I don't need God to be good. Be <clears throat> good without God. Last one, before before some of us start going, oh, time, so I'm safe, none of these hit me. Life has meaning. I have value only if I'm adhering to my religion's moral codes and accomplished, and I'm accomplished in its activities. (laughs) That's a religion item. I promised you a couple of weeks ago that I was going to talk today about the world, uh, the New Testament's most unlikely convert. It wasn't Matthew. Matthew had a uh, materialism idol. That's why he was a tax collector. Fastest way to make a good buck in the Roman Empire as a Jewish person was to be a tax collector. Get that money, get it quick. It's nobody's going to steal it because you have Roman soldiers guarding your stash. <clears throat> it wasn't the Roman army officer who probably bowed at the, the power idol. He was a man under authority. He had people he could boss around. Yeah, he had people over him, but you know, there's a price to pay to be able to boss other people around. The New Testament's most unlikely convert bowed to the religion idol. And all the while, he believed he was passionately serving the God who created the universe. He believed he was passionately, zealously serving the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He went so far as to say, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. If someone thinks he has good reasons to put confidence in human credentials, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. By the way, that was one of the rules. I was from the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. I lived according to the law as a Pharisee. In my zeal for God, I persecuted the church. According to the righteousness stipulated in the law, I was blameless. Did you hear those last two sentences? Mm. I would, listen to those two sentences, because I'm going to amplify them. In my zeal for God, I persecuted the church. And according to the righteousness stipulated in the law, I was blameless. That's what he thought until he actually met King Jesus on the road to Damascus. When he met the resurrected Messiah, his perspective exploded and everything changed. Acts chapter 9. If you think I'm being hard on this guy, I'm not. Listen to how he's described in the first verse of Acts chapter 9. His name is Saul. That's his Jewish name, his Hebrew name, Saul. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out, still, that means he had been doing it already and was continuing to do it, right? He was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And yet, according to the righteousness stipulated in the law, I was blameless. Because I found legal ways to murder people. Let that sink in. He knew the rules so well, he could kill people and still be good. That ought to scare us. Oh well. Keep reading. Okay. So, so here's an example. Still breathe out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any who were any there in Damascus who belonged to the way that were following Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. In other words, he went to the high priest and asked to become, in movie words, a double O. You know, James Bond, 007, licensed to kill. I want to be 008, Saul, licensed to kill Christians. Please. Saul is first introduced to us a couple of chapters earlier, at the execution of Stephen, the very first martyr of the church, first Christian martyr. It says to us, Saul agreed to be an accomplice to Stephen's stoning and participated in his execution. From that day on, a great persecution of the church in Jerusalem began. And Paul, Saul mercilessly, mercilessly persecuted the church of God, going from house to house into the homes of believers to arrest both men and women and drag them off to prison. Jerusalem wasn't good enough, so he wants a license to go to Damascus, a completely different area, so he can do it there again. It tells us in chapter nine, verse three, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, I think it was loud. It could have been just like this. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You know, when you're the king of kings, you don't have to raise your voice. I don't know. Saul says, who are you, Lord? Did some little research. The latest estimated birth date I could find for Saul was ten AD. He would have gone to Jerusalem for his training under the Pharisee leader Gamaliel at fourteen, which would have been twenty-four AD. At The latest. Jesus was crucified in 30 AD outside Jerusalem. I can't see any way that he didn't at some point in time, at least from a distance, see Jesus he may not have interacted with him face-to-face Kamaliel may not have let him get that close no 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 just stay away from that guy he's (laughs) getting I can see that but they were in Jerusalem their time together in Jerusalem overlapped He may have heard Jesus' teaching in the temple. He may have recognized the voice that said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And his first thought was, that sounds like, but it can't be because we killed him. So who in the world are you? the answer comes back I am Jesus whom you are persecuting now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do so the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless they heard the sound they heard the voice but they didn't see anyone Saul got up from the ground uh, but when he opened his eyes he couldn't see anything he was blinded by the light could pass that. Line. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he fasted. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, "Ananias." Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, "Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying." In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now, I love Ananias' response because he does what so many of us do. He decides that perhaps the Lord has either overlooked or missed some very important information (laughs) about Saul. Do, Lord... I've heard some reports about this guy. And all the harm he's done to your people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with the authority of the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. In other words, do I really have to go? Because he'll probably arrest me, and I don't really want to go to jail. When the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument, to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And probably the most ironic sentence of all. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. The persecutor going to become the persecuted. So Ananias went to the house, and he entered it, he found Saul, he laid hands on him, and he says to him, brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up, was baptized, and after taking some food, regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. <clears throat> and once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. On the road, who are you, Lord? Jesus says, I am Jesus. And now he's begun to preach that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, is he the man? Isn't this the man? Isn't this 008 Saul with a license to kill Christians? What is on? He came here to take people prisoners, and now he's making converts. Saul so grew more and more powerful and baffled Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus was, it is, but by proving Jesus is the Messiah. Who can turn a murderous religious zealot into an ambassador of love and grace? When the ultimate rule-keeping religious extremist meets the Messiah, jesus transforms his heart we humans focus on what we can do like following rules this is our problem so unfortunately following rules won't won't change us it may modify our behavior for a while it may make us look more acceptable it may make us different, but it won't change our hearts. Look at Saul. Saul could could still, even after his conversion, say, according to the righteousness stipulated in the law, I was blameless. But he went to Damascus still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. (coughs) By the way, in Philippians chapter 3, as he describes all those things that he had done and all the things he had achieved and all the religious things that he had accomplished, <coughs> that religious idol, when he talked about that, he says it's rubbish. And in fact, I'm going to tone it down a little bit. All of our English our translations. translations make it as mild as they possibly can, but he basically said it was a pile of crap compared to Jesus. <clears throat> all I want now is Jesus. All I want now is Jesus. i am leaving it all that behind, he said. All I want is Jesus. So here's a sermon in a sentence. Keeping rules cannot change us. Only the ruler, capital R, ruler, and I don't mean one in somebody's hand waiting to wrap our knuckles. Okay, trying to make sure you know I'm talking about a person. Only the ruler can change us. The idea of a ruler can be intimidating to us. Human rulers are... Uh, dominate and control. They threaten and intimidate. They wrap us on on our knuckles with rulers. They coerce and punish. They breathe out murderous threats and they launch genocidal wars. Uh, King Jesus, however, King Jesus, the ruler of all rulers, transforms us and he stands in stark contrast to all the human rulers. The rulers that we fear. See, if you want to experience his power, you need to go to the cross and the empty tomb. If you want to know what the King of Kings is like, what the ruler who transforms us is like, you need to go to the cross. See, Jesus rules by serving, healing, sacrificing, inviting, (coughs) loving, and welcoming. He reigns. God's kingdom family with life-giving relationships, peace, and joy. And he calls us to join him in the great adventure of turning our world right side up again. For so many people, it seems like we're turning the world upside down, but that's not. It's just because we're used to being upside down. Because we're looking with Jesus to turn it back Right side up. <laughs> Somebody prayed for Connie's Uncle Day. Lots of people prayed for Connie's Uncle Day. Her dad, Neil, Keith, Senior. As well as several nieces and children. And a group of prayer warriors. I believe somebody was praying for Saul and I know that if somebody heard them praying for Saul they threw and walked away going no that's not ever going to happen that's not only not likely that's impossible in Jesus' church He's the one who said, Nothing is impossible with God. Somebody prayed for you. If you're following Jesus today, somebody prayed for you. Who was it? Did somebody think it was unlikely? Who are you praying for? Who's the most unlikely person that you're praying for? Who's the one that you're most tempted to give up on? Well, let me tell you this, I am certain that it's not Jesus who's tempted you to give up on. Jesus is going to be the one whispering in your ear. Nothing and no one is impossible for God. Let's pray. You break in, King Jesus, on the road. in and leave us speechless and when you break in you change everything you break in with a call changes our lives break in with an invitation to follow you join you in your work break in with the truth about who you are and who we are and how you can change, transform, renew, renovate anything and everyone. You break in King Jesus with a new <clears throat> kingdom, family and a renewed world, You break in with your cross-shaped love to show us a whole new way of living. So, King Jesus, break in right here, right now to call us Your message and your name to the people around us. Holy Spirit, break in and fill us with your love and power. Renovate this broken world, turn it right side up once more. you for connecting with us online and uh, on site again appreciate your uh, participating in our worship today and uh, if you have not already done so I want to invite you to join the Champions of Hope uh, Facebook group Uh, the link is in the description on the Facebook page and you will find some unique content there and some ways to contact contact connect with Uh, other folks who are trying to infuse people with the hope of Jesus. He has called us and sent us and what we are called to do is supernatural. It is beyond human capacity. So I'm going to pray again. Because we need it. Come, Holy Spirit, we need you. Flood us with Jesus' love. Flow through us with life-giving, transforming power. Show us who to notice. Show us who to pray for. Show us who to bless and encourage. Give us Jesus' words to say to them. Come, Holy Spirit. We need you. We desperately need you to live as sent ones with Jesus. Amen. You are sent. Go with Jesus.